What's happening, friends? Welcome to another episode of IGN Unfiltered. It is our monthly interview series where I have the great privilege of sitting down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry. Uh, except this month, I'm standing with... <laughs> well, I'll explain in a moment. Hang on. Although you probably already figured it out if you're watching on video. Uh, Sean Crankle is my guest. He is the co-founder of Night School Studios. And if you're going, I kind of know, that name sounds vaguely familiar. This will do it for you. Oxenfree. That was your breakout game from a few years ago. Just fantastic adventure game. Teenagers, adventure, death. Possession. It's all kinds of partying. stuff going on. Um, and, and you've, you've uh, followed that up now with After Party, which is out October 29th. Yes. On pretty away. much every platform, uh, mostly to start. The Switch version will come later. So we'll get to all that. You're not here for your health. We are promoting a new video game. <laughs> But uh, before we get started, first of all, Sean, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. Uh, you're my guinea pig, so I, I thank you for that, because you might notice, if you're watching on video, if you're listening on audio, please check out the video this month, because we're in our new uh, bar arcade. I, don't th- I think I legally can't say barcade. I think somebody owns that. That's like a trademark thing. Ridiculous. It might have just gotten bleeped right now. I'm not sure. But yeah, we're here. We've got our, our uh, setup. We've got some cool set dressing, which... I think maybe one of the shots I'll pick up. We and then a functioning tap. Uh, cheers, cheers, my friend. Yeah, this. So I'm not good at. at Don't lie. This is your basement. We're in his basement. Yeah. So you got a, a functioning. This is a. Mm. It's a pilsner of some sort. I like it. I'll take more. It's solid. So um, the goal is not to get you drunk, but if you end up that way and and tell a bunch of crazy industry stories, yeah, well, that'll nice. only make the show better. So you know. Feel free, is I guess all I'm saying. It's just a normal thing. Say, I'm down. <laughs> just pretend it's GDC or E3. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's, enough of me. Let's get back to you. You're the star. You're the reason we're here. Uh, Sean, so uh, Oxenfree was awesome. After Party's looking great. I got to play it uh, around E3 time. It's out October 29th. PC, away. PS4. Xbox One and Xbox Game Pass. That's right. So that's uh, that's good if you're a Game Pass subscriber. Just play it. You just get it. Just be there. But I always like to start at the beginning. We're gonna we're gonna go back in time. Take me back in your brain. What were some of your favorite games growing up? I want to figure out how we got go to where back. you are. Yeah, let's go hop in the way back. back machine. We're gonna go pre Super Nintendo. Good. We're gonna go pre NES. Oh, okay. I'm you don't look that back. old. You no. don't look that old. I'm older than you think. <laughs> um, we're going to go wood panel Atari 2600. Really? We're going to go probably that bad Spider-Man game. You remember the Spider-Man no. game? No. See, I, NES is my, is that, my that jumping off point. point. Okay, yeah, so that's... my dad got us a, an Atari 2600, and all I remember was that. Also, yeah. it was a horrible Pac-Man game. It was like the worst <laughs> port of all time. But Spider-Man, you just had like a single color building, and then you mm-hmm. shot like a massive pixel... Uh, wide uh, uh, web up yeah. the side of the screen, and then you just fell over and over and over again. So that's <laughs> how I fell in love with games. Um, but then, yeah, probably Mario Three. I mean, all of mine are going to sound like everybody else's. Super that's Mario okay, Three though. is just—it's your story. So great. But then a lot of the, you know, like the Lucas Art stuff is is massive. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Day of the Tentacle in particular, although Sam and Max, Maniac Mansion. I played Maniac Mansion on NES. I didn't play it on yeah. PC. Yeah. Which was just a slog. Have you played that recently? 
recently? Have you tried uh, it? No, with a, not, with a not in a little while. Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, you can still microwave a hamster, <laughs> but it's it's rough. Uh, but yeah, the the uh, I would say definitely um, you know like like all of those that I mentioned. But my favorite of all time, Link to the Past. I've probably played Link to the Past I don't know thirty times. That's a solid oh, answer. Through. So good. We Perfection. got Link's Awakening out now. So yeah. that's you yeah. know that's uh, uh, you can't, can't beat that. that. Yeah, it's good good times. But all right, so you've been gaming since you were a kid. Yes. Let's fast forward to you're growing up. You're starting to figure out who Sean is, what yes. Sean's going to be. Tell me, I, I, see, I learned so much. I love doing this show for a million reasons. One of them is I, I just learn all kinds of crazy stuff about each of my guests as I prepare for these things. You worked on a late 90s soap opera <laughs> t- television show called Sunset Beach. Wait, before that. Before, oh, there's before a before that. that. Okay. I worked at EB Games in the yeah. Lombard Mall across from EGM for like five years. Nice. As a, like a pre-teen into teenage years. Yeah, first job sling, kind of thing. First job kind mm-hmm. of thing. Slinging uh, uh, Donkey Kong Country with a big orange hat on my head. <laughs> um, and then I got an internship out here or out in Los Angeles when I was 19, and that would be for that show. So it was called Sunset Beach. Yeah. Uh, it was this failed Aaron Spelling daytime soap opera. So my... My first introduction to L.A. was like, oh, yeah, of course you hang out with, like, the Spellings, and you go to this (laughs) block-long mansion, and actually threw up in Aaron Spellings' bowling alley underground by mistake. This is already off to a horrible start. Well, let's press pause for a second. How how do you end up with an internship? So where are you from originally? Is it Chicago? Illinois, so it's, like, 20 minutes outside of Chicago. Okay. Yeah. So how how do you get from Chicago? Did you want to go out west into the games uh, games or entertainment industry? What's entertainment for sure? I was yeah. going to school in Chicago at Columbia College for film. Okay. And so this was like a writing internship uh, that a friend of the family was actually a writer on this series, Sunset Beach, and she had written on all the you know Days of Our Lives, all yeah. these other soap operas, and it was like, will your parents let you go out there and live alone while you're 19? And I made the case everywhere, and I got credit from Columbia, talked them nice. into it, then I dropped out of college. So it didn't matter but <laughs> I, I pushed and pushed and moved out and stayed for those three months and I was like I just need to stay out here and start but, working. I mean that must have been like if that had happened to me at 19 I'd have been freaking out that would have been the I most awesome thing out. like what do you mean what I get to go out to LA and work on a TV show it was crazy were yeah, you just out yeah. of your mind out of my mind yeah so yeah basically during the day I would just like drive golf carts around and take people down to set and then sometimes they'd be like try this weird wardrobe thing on so that we can see if the color looks right. But I was all pale and skinny and bluish white colored. And I was like, (laughs) just don't show these pictures to anybody. Uh, And then, yeah, I just kind of like at the end of that was like, I just want to stay and work because I didn't get a job there. And I was probably going to go back to school, which would have been great. But um, from there, a friend of mine that had been uh, like the office assistant on that show knew somebody over at Disney Feature Animation. And I was like, I'm going to go try and get in there as a PA and make my way in there. So then took that jump. Wait, so it really is who you know, isn't it? It's It's like like a mix of like, you have to just have no fear, which I have a lot more fear now that I'm in my early 40s. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Like, (laughs) I'm way worse now. Yes. Like, I got LASIK when I was 22. I would, like, it would terrify me now. But I just just laid down and did it then. (laughs) No, I would definitely not do it now. Too much to lose. Uh, So... Yeah, I at that time it was just like work my ass off. Plus, it was free. I had saved up a bunch of money, and I just kept pushing through. And yeah, I happened to know a person that was friends with somebody over at Disney. I interviewed there. I actually promised the person to her credit. I won't say her name, but she was like, "I will only give you this job as a PA if you promise to go back to school." And I was like, "Absolutely!" And I just 
didn't do that. I just started working there. Stay in school, kids. <laughs> Stay in school. Uh, yeah, so that, my first day there, I was a PA on Bugs Life. And so I was wow. like the recording coordinator and PA on that. So Are you in the like, credits? I'm in the credits for that and the credits for Tarzan, a bunch of crazy Disney movies. That's awesome. That yeah, which is so crazy. you ended up, before you get to where you are now uh, as, a, as a, the head of, you know, co-head of your own studio, you worked for Disney on somehow three separate occasions? Three times. How does that happen? It's a gift and a curse. I don't know. <laughs> the, so the first time was feature animation, right? Yeah. So I worked there for, I don't know, what did you find? Four years? I can't remember. <laughs> so that's, that's the PA job? That's it. So it was a PA, then into a coordinator. So okay. I was like the effects coordinator on Tarzan was the last thing that I cool. did. Cool. But I was still only 20, whatever, 21, 20. Yeah. I didn't even know what I was doing, really. And what I realized at that point in time was like I was climbing a totem pole that I didn't really know what I would do there because within Disney, certainly at that time, you had to be like a story artist if you were going to have a creative impact on how the narrative worked, Mm -hmm. um, which I was not, or you had to be an animator or a variety of other things. So it was like there was this production path there that seemed cool, but these movies take, you know, for people that don't know, it's like four to eight years to make an animated movie. So major, major commitment. Yeah. um, after that period of time, that's when I was like, I want to get out of this. But I still did not know how to get into games at all. It was another kind of fluke. What was thing. so was the games <laughs> thing? Was that just like always in the back of your head? Like, man, I'd love to make video games. Hyper passionate about games. Yeah. Like every aspect of my life was games from like like outside. So you know, I was a big like pen and paper guy, but not on D and D on the Ninja Turtles RPG instead. There was a tur- there was a pen and paper. Oh yeah, that sounds and, awesome. And, Ninja thing. and it was all like the old comic style. So hyper oh, yeah. violent. You know, they're all tied up yeah, red. Eastman and Laird yes. stuff. Like there was yeah, crossovers we- with ninjas and super spies and a few other things. And there was just this big crazy. Yeah, thanks. So, anyways, so, wait, 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 hold on. Do you roll? Are you playing one of the f- turtles in this in this you pen and paper, whatever, or, or you, you make want. your own character? You make your own. And I made. Who were you? His name. This is horrible. His name was Nemad, which was yeah. Damien backwards. Yeah. I was thirteen. Don't don't hate. <laughs> he was scaly. He had blades coming out of everything. He yep. was covered in blood. My mom probably should have called the police. What was he a, mute, a mutation of? It was like everything. Everything. You know, it was like when you go to the go to Subway and put all the soda in one cup. Right. I had that mentality. And so you drew them in some like notebook paper. Drew them in notebook oh, paper. Yeah. Rolled a bunch of dice. Yeah. Here we go. That's cool. And it was like, yeah, he would go and you know stop drug deals and in, in uh, warehouses things right. like that, <laughs> as mutants do. So games are always in the back of your head. You're Absolutely. playing games, pen and paper, and video game. Um, yes. So. Was there what? What made you want to be a game developer? Was it was it that sort of the, that love that was always there combined with this sort of production path in in entertainment that's not going quite where you want it to go? Or it's, where it's does it come from? Exactly that. And I, you know, I will say, looking back, it probably seems like it all fell into place with a, a major plan in place. But it was more <laughs> like I knew I wanted to stay in LA. I knew I wanted to work in entertainment and or games. Yeah. I was looking for games jobs, but at that time, this is like 99, right? Mm-hmm. So in 99, there wasn't a very clear path. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go to USC and have this right. huge game career that's going to you know sprout from that. It was everybody's path back then was, was very odd, right? Yeah. So um, I, at that time, it's another one of these things where it was like somebody that I had worked with 
at sun, during the Sunset Beach era, she had mentioned to me that uh, she had a friend who was also like a coordinator over at Universal Interactive. At yes. The time. So Universal Interactive was this perfect kind of crossover for me because I had the experience of where I had just been the last few years on the film side, and Universal Interactive was on the lot. They, you know, this is when they were still working with Insomniac and working with Naughty Dog. Mark Cerny was like just leaving as the head of Universal Interactive at that time. Yeah. Um, and I interviewed there for like an associate producer gig, and it wasn't even a design thing at all. It was much more on the production right. path, and it just worked. It just happened. <laughs> you're in your you're, you're in your early twenties at this 21 point. So twenty one. Twenty one. Maybe twenty two. And so in my notes, it's you ended up heading up a team that was working on a platformer for Universal. Do, is that correct? So that is correct. So um, in the very beginning, I was working on a couple of the Crash spinoffs, and these were the bad Crash spinoffs. You know, the <laughs> moment when Naughty Dog is like, bye, and then it's like, here's a really whack uh, PS2 game or whatever. So I was working on that, doing some design work and working as an associate producer. But Microsoft at that time, this is before the first Way Xbox before Xbox, out, right? yeah. And they were kind of going to publishers and developers and going like, you are great at this, so we want to partner with you on this. So they're going to go to EA to try to get a great sports game. Mm-hmm. And they came to us because platformers were still really oh, yeah. a big deal, right? And so um, our whole kind of production crew started to pull together these various pitches. And I, in over the course of a weekend, just go nuts and write this ridiculous pitch about a ferret that has been kidnapped by a torturous kid and he's kept in a cage under a bed and the kid watches all these violent kung fu movies and so the ferret steals a big pen and some yarn and a paper clip and he breaks out he fights all these cockroaches and then he goes on this animal liberation movement so it's like this like dirty toy story type of a (laughs) platformer that had stealth in it and it was called ferris so i pitched this to microsoft and they green light it and I'm like, what? Because <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'm doing still. Like, I'm just sort of winging it. And we're like, we're going to find a developer to work with on this thing. And so that's essentially what happened. I mean, like, this is the age of impossible, right? Yeah. So it's like, I guess, yes. I guess the, that was it. Sounds yes. like it's good to go. Like, all right, green light. Let's do this. It was insane. So we initially, it was with Bizarre Creations. You remember Bizarre? Of course. I yeah. mean, Project Gotham Racing. Incredible. Blur. I mean, what an incredible studio. Yeah. So, so great to work with. Super, super talented. And so this was, I think, right after they did Fur Fighters. So they were like a really good kind of fit for yeah, that. That would have been, probably, I think, maybe pre-Metropolis Street Race. That was sort of before yeah, they hit like the racing. A, like two years before. I yeah. think PGR was already out, but may, or which one? No, came Metropolis first? MSR was first. MSR and was and first. That, that and led PGR to PGR. Was, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So then I work on this game for like a year. They give me a budget. I'm the producer and lead designer on it. I'm spending all this time out in the UK. I'm just a child. <laughs> are, are your parents like when you call home to t- tell your parents what's going? Like, <laughs> are they like just stunned at what you're like? Do they just think that? California is this magical place, or that you're just this, this, this like golden, I, like Midas touch I don't child? Know. Like I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What your parents think? I don't know. Every time I was going back home, though, it was odd. It was very odd because I was like, <laughs> "This is working out." And there's yeah. certainly low times. You know, I'm just talking through the highlights, but yeah. like that part was crazy because yeah, then I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm flying to the UK all the time. So then I think. Right around then, so Sly Cooper comes out, a few other games come out that are in that general genre, but like three or four come out that bomb. I can't remember the names of them, but a few of these big budget platformers come out, and then Universal pulled the plug, Mm -hmm. so that was it. We're like a year in, and I had blown all this money, and the game just sort of died, which sucked. 
Um, so then I kind of skip. I, I flip back over, working on more crash stuff, but working on the, the better ones. So that was fun. Yes, <laughs> um, design work and production work on those, and then. Um, oh, then we can go into Fifty Cent. That's yeah, well, I mean, that's so. You, you worked on the first one, Bulletproof. Yes. yes. Um, just before we before we get to that, uh, just licensed game because you worked on, and I think a lot of licensed games over the years, like twenty probably. That's a lot, yeah, a ton. Um, you know, that to me, to 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 a gamer who just sort of sees the final product. It seems like working on a licensed game would be a total nightmare mm. where you just have fixed budget, fixed time, and you better get it done or else. Because most of them over the years, I guess up until recently when people have started to put more money and time into these things, but they, were, they always had the reputation of being kind of just horrible, terrible. <laughs> yes. I mean, they still so, mostly do, right? I guess it's Mostly. more on, on it's more they get kind of pu- pushed to mobile now. Yes. It's not as true. we don't see that's them as true. much on the console side, but Yes. Yeah, what's like do you know as you're I as you're a mobile game developer that you you just know that you're you just have to make the best of a tough situation it's, or do you do you think like yeah, this is good. I'm going to make this awesome. This is going to be great. And then it somehow doesn't it somehow goes horribly awry. Like what's it's what is the mindset? It's super different every time. Okay. So like all those um, those logistics you're talking about about timelines and budgets and all that. Those are all awful, uh, certainly. But even on top of that, it's like how much uh, feedback or direct line of communication do you have with the license holder right. is is critical, right? So like even recently, like we did the Mr. Robot game for like through our studio at Night School. Yes. That went great because we worked directly with their whole team and it was very fast and fluid and they trusted us and we trusted them. And like these people who have these licenses or the creators of these shows they don't want to make something shitty. Like, they want to make great stuff, (laughs) right? So it's about all the layers in between, usually, and it's also about how risky do you want to get with it. So in the case of the 50 Cent game, that went really awry, like the first one. (laughs) So, yeah, I got got to hear about that because... First of all, like, are you? Do you volunteer for this? Are you assigned to it? Like, how does it come about? Well, before that, here's the worst license game: The Grinch. Okay, I worked on The Grinch, uh, PS One. It was Dreamcast, PS One. Can't remember what else. Maybe N sixty four. And I don't mean to say it's the worst game, but that is the example that you're speaking of. I think where yeah. it's like it's just the timelines are bad. Everything is sort of bad. And on that one, you know, to all credit to A two M, who was the developer on it. I think they're called Behavior now. Uh, they, I think they changed the name, yeah. But it was like, how do we do a Spyro clone in 10 months? And it was sort of like, that's hard as hell, that's gonna be a nightmare, but it's kind of a fun challenge. Like, you actually aren't, you know, hating on yourself at the moment. You're yeah. just more like, this is crazy, let's get gung-ho and go do it. And the thing that I tell a lot of people is like, making a bad game is almost exactly as hard as making a good game. Hmm. Like, <laughs> the amount of effort and the amount of intelligent people and the amount of like vision that goes into those games is is very akin to some of our favorite games. It's just that those teams aren't afforded a lot of the opportunities and they're getting focus tested to death and they've got a boardroom full of people who are shooting things down. So So you're getting noted to death? Yes. Like nonstop, right? And so I think for the for a game like that, you know, that's going to inherently put out a product that's not that great. But um, in like I said, you know, in the in the case of the Mr. Robot game, that worked out really well. And there can be sort of any spectrum in between. Right. Fifty was weird because I was like initially sort of the internal 
uh, flag waver just behind like let's make a thing like we should yeah. do this um, and Interscope Records was basically part of the big same parent company so mm-hmm. that's why that all started okay. um, and at the time Interscope was like we want to make a game we think that this guy is going to be huge and the more we looked into it, it was like yeah this does I mean he's going to blow up Get Rich or Die Trying hadn't come out yet yep. um, he was you know obviously under the tutelage of Dre and, and Eminem and so then it turned into like okay let's get behind it we actually started making a much bigger game a much bigger game. It was like an open world GTA clone wow. initially with another studio that I don't know if I should mention, but they're Fair a great enough. studio. Yeah. Uh, that got really far along, far enough along, then it got canceled. And then at the last minute, it was like, we still need to make this game for oh. scope. <laughs> so fast forward, 50 Cent Bulletproof is another one of these like 11 month titles, right? I mean, it's like a brutal timeline. So the team there, like I mentioned earlier, when you talk about people that do great work that are working their butts off, like the lead designer went on to do um, uh, Darksiders 1 and 2. Wow. Like most of that team went on to do really incredible things, but just had a lot of challenges thrown at them. Man. Um and what, how do you feel about that game now? Like, <laughs> it was fun. No, I mean, the game, the game was not fun. Working on the game was a blast. <laughs> I think the game is what we all think it is. It's like a pretty bad third-person shooter. I think that Blood in the Sand ended up being much better. Well, I, I left before that really I was going to say, like, if you tell people you worked on the 50 Cent game, does everyone immediately think it was, <laughs> like, it was yeah. Blood in the Sand? They're like, yeah, that game was cool. I'm like, oh, well, it wasn't that How about one. the other one? <laughs> Yeah, no, we like we we were ideating that one right before I left. So we would sit in the room. We're like, "What's the most outlandish, ridiculous setting?" And yeah. you know, like I think a lot of people. I think some of the charm of that game is that people are still like, "Do people know that this is hilarious?" Everybody that worked on it knew it was hilarious. <laughs> like this was not intended to be serious. It was very tongue in cheek. But like the first game, I mean, we had so the writer of Bulletproof was Terry Winter, who is the creator of Boardwalk Empire. He wrote wow. Wolf of Wall Street. He was the <laughs> exec producer of Sopranos. It was like that caliber, you know? And then, like, I got to direct Dr. Dre. So it was, I liked working on it. The game's not great, but it was fun to work on. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. So let's fast forward. When and how do you connect with your cousin Adam, who'd who'd worked at Telltale on, uh, coincidentally, probably my two favorite Telltale games, Wolf Among Us and Tales from the Borderlands? Uh, and and decide to start your own independent studio. So we uh, we connected when he was born, um, and that, <laughs> and uh, for years we had wanted to work together. So we actually worked at the same company most of that decade. Like he was at Universal doing QA while I was oh, okay. there. Uh, when I was at Disney Interactive, he was there. So he like, had the, we games, always the game around. development bug too. He had the bug as well. Um, and I think that you know, for, up until then, there was just not a natural path to us doing it. We had talked about maybe we write a movie together, maybe we do this, maybe we do that, but. Like, digital distribution had not really taken off yet. Unity wasn't really a thing. Mm-hmm. So, like, there was no way for us to do that. And about, I don't know, maybe, I guess this is 2011-ish, um, I actually went up and interviewed at Telltale to be a creative director there. Didn't get that gig, but we kept, and he was there at the time. Okay. Adam was already there. And at that point, that was the light switch where we were both like, we want to do something special together. Let's figure it out and let's be very aggressive about it. Like now it's time to shit or get off the pot. So we spent about six months ideating what we'd want to do. This is while I was still at Disney. He was a telltale. And then I got laid off at Disney. And then that was the perfect like 
kick to get things rolling, basically. Because um, I had a two-year-old daughter, and it was like, you know, I, you have basically five months before you burn through all your savings. Right. Uh, let's get this thing off the ground. And so we pulled together like a business plan and the general structure of Oxenfree in that period of time. Did one or the other convince like who who was leading the charge on that on that effort? Because that's a big decision. It's a huge decision, especially when he was already gainfully employed yeah, while I fine. was <laughs> without a gig. Uh, I mean, we had been talking about it at, for for months pr- prior to that, but it was almost more of a cathartic thing in the beginning. You know, when you work somewhere, you're like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this, if we did that? Yeah. But then it really started to coalesce, and then when that layoff happened, it was like. I'm going to do it. So he basically said to me, he's just like, I trust you. I'll like, l- let me know when these things are really starting to come together. And we worked at night a lot on what a proposal would look like and how we could actually go out and raise some money to try and get a game. That was done. the next thing I wanted to ask yeah, you. It's like, yeah. you know, I've had a million developers in here and it's fascinating to me every time, but like, how do you con- who, how, how do you go get money that like it's not cheap to set up shop? I mean, you probably I don't know how many employees you guys have. I'm sure it's a, a dozen up or more. At Thirteen now. Thirteen. But back okay. then we were four. So. Well, but still, it's like you got to pay people. You got to you got lawyers for you know oh, all the. 401k and all this and that like toilet but, paper but first you got to raise like so who do you even target do you have to go to do you start like at a bank or do you look at like investment firms or it's, it's a great question um for this specific thing it was another case of making the most of prior working relationships so <laughs> well, you are you're I, like a charmed man you I know that right like, like i i had left games for five years in the middle of everything we talked about and yeah. went to work on the marketing side of things and so um, I worked at a marketing agency. We, I wrote like a bunch of ARGs, which you know what an ARG is, yeah. So did did a bunch of um, creative work for games and film on the marketing side, and decided that I wasn't a marketing person. Like I was okay in that space, and I liked. I got the entrepreneurial itch from doing that because you're out pitching and you're yeah. getting shot down all the time. But ultimately, when I left, the head of one of those agencies that I had worked at, he like we left on really good terms, and he good. was like, "If you ever want to work together again, let me know." So he in the in the very beginning when I was pitching night school it was actually to be an extension of his agency now he was really interested in that but then he was like we as an agency have our own identity crisis because agencies are like we do this we do that we do other things why are we making new IP video games (laughs) so at the last minute he kind of was more like we'll we'll put a little bit in but you got to go raise the rest sure and then that was just a crazy hunt for for folks now the amount that I asked for was enough for four people to work for a year and a half, right? So it wasn't overly crazy. Right. Um, but fortunately, they trusted me enough to have what at the time was probably a pretty simplistic business plan because we really were just like, let's make the coolest possible game that yeah. we adore and we'll put it out. There's no free-to-play hooks. <laughs> it's just going to make something <laughs> really cool. And uh, that's, yeah, that's how it came together over the course of those six months. So uh, what... What lessons and wisdom does does Adam impart from his time at Telltale, either good or bad, right? Like, yeah. oh, this this totally worked. We should do this, or or let's make sure to not do this at all. Um, I'm sort of I'm sort of curious because you know I don't know. I mean, this is a while ago. Telltale obviously and unfortunately ended very badly, which I mean I'm a, in my opinion certainly seemed to have been poor management from mm-hmm. the top that, that sunk the studio. So what were, were, were there uh, some sort of obvious lessons that, that you guys had learned to live by right away? 
So not only the creative ones, not the business okay. ones early yeah. on. The creative ones, it was more like how can we siphon his learnings about branching narrative design that he got there in the short time that he was there? Because I think he was there for like a year and a half, two okay. years. But he still oversaw a ton of projects there. And they had a lot of great process in place in terms of like how to reinforce player agency and how to really get choices making sense. And so... Uh, and he's just a great writer. And so I think in the beginning, it was like, how do we take that from what they require 200 people to make and how do we let four people do it? <laughs> and how do we like distill that? Because in the beginning, we were like, we were just like, like I think we talked for a while about going, how do you take Limbo and The Walking Dead and mix them together? That was like the mission that's statement a, that's for That's a killer Oxenfree. elevator pitch right there. <laughs> and that's really what we were pitching. It was like Limbo and The Walking Dead. Like, what if you're playing Limbo and you could talk while you're doing it? And then... <laughs> That got us this momentum. But, you know, over time, I think it, it was less about when he started there. And it was more like because we worked with them on the uh, uh, the Mr. Robot game and on an unannounced thing that ended up going down when they went down. Yeah. And during that time, it was then we really realized, like, just stay lean and stay yeah. innovative. Because yeah, like you uh, you guys didn't get paid for that is what I there what was I read. a chunk that we did not. Right. So, so that I mean, was rough. Was that was that scary? Like, is there I mean, you, hopefully you. Plan for that. I mean, I, I can't imagine having a client that that won't that can't or won't pay. When we're that small, it's like a blow to the side of the ship that is almost you can barely recover from yeah. it. So fortunately, you know, we had we have so far still sort of mixed doing original IP and then doing some outside like client work here and there. And so like NBC Universal w with Mr. Robot and yeah. then the Mummy game that we made. Which let's just skip over that one. Uh <laughs> Isn't that kind of Hollywood thing of like? One for them, one for us. It's, a little, it's, it's literally sort of like that, yeah. And, you know, there's licenses that we would want to, like, knock out of the park, and those ones we wanted to do as well. But, yeah. like, we are not allergic to working with partners who will keep us safe and who are yeah. good to work with, you know? Yeah. So, um, but, yeah, when that happened, it was it was terrifying. So, uh, yeah, Night School spinning up, which, by the way, so does, does the name Night School come from the fact that you guys started by working in the evenings You know on it. what? I wish it was that. It's just, we're like, it sounds cool. <laughs> I swear to God, it was more like, it's evocative of a little bit of that. Well, you know, you can set night. your own narrative right now. You can Actually. Just... <laughs> no, it was, it was really like, it was just that vision of like, there's youthfulness, there's stuff going on after hours. Yeah. There's all of that, but there's no hyper specific <laughs> thing. Yeah. So did, did the, the idea for Oxenfree sound like, did that come right at the studio's onset like you you had that going in like that that was uh, your and uh, and and Adam's idea heading into this whole thing it was it was, there were two I'm things I'm going to refill you by Please the way do. I Let's was see how, I was how, giving how, the the eye <laughs> um, oh good pour it's a little better, a little better. it's a little better um, there we go great pour yeah, okay not bad it's right I don't do this for a living yeah, thank you let's Look at that. That's a really good part. Um, yeah, the, we had two ideas that we wanted to somehow merge. One was just a pure design idea, which was like, how can we make story the toy? Yeah. So like, how can, if every other studio is going, story is this connective tissue between what the real gameplay is, we were like, how do we just make the gameplay story? And so communication and all of that was like a thing that we wanted to make sure there was no cutscenes. we never took control away from the player, and there was more like an ability for the player. And so... From that, knowing how small we were, we were like, well, let's start to develop ideas for a story that a team this small can make. So a desolate island is a pretty good place for something like that. A small cast is a pretty good place for something like that. 
them not having machine guns and rocket launchers is probably <laughs> pretty cost effective for us. Um, and so, on, you know, on the other side of that, like we're just huge fans of like Spielbergian 80s teen preteen stuff. And there, it wasn't overly saturated yet. Like Stranger Things hadn't come out. None of that was really out yet when we started because it was 2014, like mm-hmm. right when we were starting. And so those two things just kind of kept feeding each other. It's like the toy is talking and we want a bunch of teens who are dealing with teen coming of age stuff. Yeah. And, and we kept going, but the, the ghostly nature of it, that came later. Uh, we didn't have that yet. So at, at what point during the project, I always love asking this question of everybody that's made something cool. Where, when, when do you know that you have something special? Is it like on paper up front, like this is gonna be great, or is it not until gamers are playing it, like, or somewhere in between? I'm always curious. It is a it is an emotional roller coaster because in the very beginning you're like, oh, I got something really special here, and then you start to sort of like dig in a bit and you go, oh, there's a lot of problems under here that we have to solve. That even though we thought we were picking the simplest thing, it's extremely difficult. Yeah. And then you solve a bunch of those problems. You go, oh, this is incredible. And so, like for us. The out, from the outset, we're like a coming-of-age story where you determine how the player comes of age and you can talk freely the whole time. That, we were like, we're on to something. But about halfway through the game, we're like, this game sucks. <laughs> like, we are, we're dead in the water because none of the performances were in yet. It was way more complicated to make than we expected. Like, there's so much performance in the characters' animations. There's so much in terms of, like, how do you... Uh, convey fear and tension when the camera is so far away right. and you don't have the language of film to work with where we're cutting between people and so for a long period it was like I don't know if this is going to work and then right towards the end we're like okay this feels special so it's it's definitely it's a roller coaster huh. so it's it's by the but by the end by the time you shipped it you you felt really good about it yes although even then it was like the game was so synonymous with the studio. We didn't even really think... I mean, Night School was a studio, but really we were like, we're the people making Oxen Free together. And if it doesn't do well, we're going to just go get other jobs. But if it does do well, oh shit, we got a studio. we <laughs> got to make some more things. And yeah. so right when it came out, we had something we were proud of, but we didn't know if it would resonate. But yeah, we felt great about it. Well, on a sort of the other side of that same coin, I'm curious, you know, is it frustrating at all to try and cut through the noise as mm-hmm. an independent studio, you know, knowing that you have something you feel really good about to just try and get noticed when there are like 5,000 other great independent titles that are publishing to PC and consoles on an almost literal daily basis? <laughs> yes, uh, it's terrifying. It continues to get even more terrifying. I think um, one of the things that probably helped from just that stint that I did on the marketing side was understanding at least where to start with an idea that is big and not so esoteric that it's hyper-focused on just a particular group of gamers. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a way that we could communicate Oxenfree that would sound very focused, but there's another version where you just go, you know, it's the, it's a playable uh, freaks and geeks and poltergeists mixed together, and how do we communicate the game that way and, and give that promise? And so that's not just, like, how you message the game, but even, like, our art style, for example. At that time pixel art I mean pixel art is still huge but like at that time it was like the biggest thing from yeah. like 2012 to 2015 and we were like let's intentionally go left even though we love those types of games we want to look different and make it look like we are you know somebody that would be talked about with the other big boys so right. like I think Cappy does a great job of that and has always done a great job of that like they are an indie studio that has 
um, that, that is always talked about in sort of the AAA conversation. True. You know, we we kind of leaned into that, and we continue to try to do that. So, what sort of similar question of, uh, of from a minute ago? Was there a point where you felt like you know you're put you're about to put it out into the wild, and you feel like all right, I think we have some good visibility and some good awareness here, or is it still just terrifying? To, to, are you sitting there going, is anyone even going to notice this game? It's definitely terrifying, even once it's out, right? So, like, we got pretty good reviews, so that helped. But even then, it's like, how do you get people to latch on to the aspects of the game that we think they should latch on to? And yeah. with a game like Oxenfree that has so much sort of mystery behind the story, you, we were very precious, I think, early on in all the wrong ways. We were like, check this out, isn't it mysterious? And then didn't really convey what was happening in the game. And over time, we changed how we messaged that. So like when the PS4 version came out a few months after the Xbox and PC version, we leaned into the mind-bendiness of the game. And yeah. we leaned into the time loops and the puzzles and, and all of that intrigue and, and kind of pulled back from some of the things that were more kind of generic because it's not a horror game we don't want to sell it as a horror game so you just find ways i think for us one of the biggest things was like talking to the community a lot and understanding what they love because for us we're like there's it's a jambalaya of a lot of stuff we love Mm -hmm. but maybe there's only three things that people are really resonating with so you just change the message based on that and and do you feel like that worked on the ps with the ps4 version absolutely yeah so on the even before the ps4 version came out we were realizing that people were replaying the game and we hadn't built in any sort of uh, like reward structure for that. And we're like, oh, because during Adam's time at Telltale, he was like, people barely play through these things the first time. They definitely don't play through a second time. We started looking at our metrics. We're like, people are playing Oxenfree one and a half times on average. Wow. So they're usually playing two, three if they're really into it. And we're like, there's nothing there for that. So we built the New Game Plus version then that really fit nicely with the fiction of the game because there are time loops and we found a way to make it feel like that's the complete version of the game and then it just blew up it really blew up after that i I love hearing that so to the disc one more thing on the discoverability thing because this it's a fascinating topic to me as somebody Mm. i mean it's it's a big part of my job i'm the Mm. previews editor here it's my job to try and filter you know what ign should cover that's coming Mm. up and you know, back when I worked at Official Xbox Magazine, it was a lot easier, both in terms of it was a single platform, just Xbox, and there there weren't like we could literally look at every single game that came that came onto right. Xbox. Now, with even even if I did just cover Xbox here, because of ID at Xbox, there are developers Sorry. constantly putting out stuff every single day. So I tell you, I, like I've been, I have whined, I've spent a lot of this generation. Uh, telling Phil Spencer uh, in person when I get the chance, like, hey, bring back Xbox Live Arcade, like yes. a curated, you know, weekly, regular thing where people know just every Wednesday I'm going to get some new stuff that's been handpicked, probably really cool Xbox Live Arcade games on the 360. Like, I would love to see that come back now with, with you know, not, nothing against ID at Xbox, but things just come out and there's no way to really know, like, what's good and what's not are you with me on this? Would you like to see the platform holders kind of do some some curation? I mean, Apple Apple's trying to do this with Arcade, with their Apple Arcade, and that's looks like they might be off to a good start with that, but 
As, as someone who makes independent games that... <laughs> are you with me? <laughs> that would thrive on that? Yeah. Uh, well, as a, as a consumer, 100%. <laughs> and then as a, somebody that's running a studio, 100%, yes. Um, but I think it's, you know, like the, there's there's a, a double-edged sword, right? Like yeah. there's, for, for the smaller teams, maybe they're not going to be able to get as much recognition. But True. there's such a fire hose of content out there all the time now. And there, it's hard to differentiate when you've only got, you know, a second of somebody's attention span to understand what the promise of that game is so the platform holders like in particular really yeah xbox and apple now are, are taking steps towards that which feels really good um how you know before we move on to after party that is why you're here you're not here for your health you're not here for a, a psychiatric analysis which hopefully that's not what this feels like but um i'm just sort of curious like obviously oxen free has done well enough that you're making another game but but how like how did it do for you guys? You know, you've you've reduced the price. It's ten dollars on any platform now, and it's on just about every platform. But get it, get it. Uh, are like, you know, are you are you thinking? Oh, maybe we should put this on Apple Arcade or or a Google Stadia. Like, are you kind of still looking at ways to 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 keep the oxen free train rolling? And and yeah, how has it done for you guys? Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that has been the biggest learning experience for me over this whole studio is like as much as you can do that is independent, the better you are off as a studio. And I don't mean that in a weird control freak way. I mean that in like a, we created Oxenfree, we own Oxenfree, and now that is a thing that we can pull levers on whenever we want. We can put it on sale, we can put it on whatever platform we want, and it continues to grow. And we want to keep building like evergreen franchises and games that don't feel particularly like, oh yeah, that obviously came out in 2015, 2016. And so... Oxenfree was a slow burn. Like, it didn't just take off immediately. I think it took about a year before it was, like, it really found its footing. Interesting. But then once it did, it just, like, snowballed. And I think oh, that's there's... awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's been great. We've done over a million units Good across multiple platforms. Yeah, and that's, like, sold. And then but from things like Game Pass and elsewhere, I think it's, like, installed over three million times. So it's pretty crazy. Um, is there a Switch version? Remind there me. Is there is a Switch version. There is. Yeah, okay. Yes. That's probably the optimal way to play it. I right? Would say. I mean, yeah, it's pretty. For me, I love playing it that way. Yeah, yeah. it's fantastic. Because you have touch controls and the uh, the joysticks. True. Joy cons. So uh, we move to after party now. You go from teenagers trying not to die <laughs> to uh, young adults who are dead. Unfortunately. So. Um, I ask you with all due respect as we sit here with beers did the idea for this game where you're trying to out drink Satan to escape hell did it come about while you were sober? No. <laughs> no. Uh, no. <laughs> Neither did the ferret game <laughs> from earlier in our conversation. Um, the yeah like so after party Really where it started was we wanted to try to build a game that was just in a bar. We thought that would be a fun thing to do, right? Like, I'm the idiot who goes into a Skyrim pub and just hangs out there and drinks and watches the the animation sway (laughs) in Red Dead. Like, I I love that, right? And I was like, nobody is making the most of pubs and bars as a setting. And at that time, I think we were about maybe a year after Papers, Please had come out. And Papers, Please was another thing where we were like, what an efficient, brilliant game because you yeah. can have all of these different walks of life come into a single location and, and have a story come right. out of that, right? Which is very different from what we had done before. And so we were like, well, let's make a bar game. And then in the beginning, it was just like, well, what could you do? Could you be a bartender? And then, as you've seen, pouring beers isn't all that fun. So we were like, let's do the drinking in the bars and then that sort of snowballed and the hell you know stuff that came a little bit later (laughs) but ultimately we thought 
as a studio that wants story to be the core of your interactions, drinks could be a really fun way to augment a dialogue system, yes. to augment abilities, to augment all of this. <laughs> it's like an RPG mechanic, basically. Absolutely it is. Yeah. So, so then... The, the the funny part, this is very odd. So there's a there's a cemetery called Forest Lawn across from our studio, and it's massive. Anybody that has been to L.A., it's like, I don't know, three miles across, literally. And so everybody's buried there, and it's this sprawling, crazy place. And we'll walk over there and brainstorm sometimes. And Adam and I were just walking past some giant uh, crypt, and we're like, wouldn't it be cool if you were dead doing this? We're like, yeah, it's stupid. And then maybe two hours later, we're like, what if you had to outdrink Satan? That's really <laughs> stupid. And then a week later, we're like, no, that's that's pretty cool. Like, we should do this. And then it all just came together after that. We really started working on it. That, that was a little over two years ago. That's so cool. Was there was there ever any thought to trying to maybe continue Oxenfree's story and keep that going? Absolutely. Yeah. And there are still thoughts there about still that. There are still thoughts. Yes, yes. We know what we would want to do with that if we did that, too. So we're still thinking that through. But, like, I think, you know, with After Party, it is almost like a... It's not a spiritual successor, but you'll see, like, as people play the game, it's not just this, like, surface, ridiculous pub crawl through hell, which right. it is all of that. But <laughs> it's really, like, this exploration of Milo and Lola's friendship and why they died and how they died and teasing out trauma, but in a fun way. Like, it's it's a comedy. But ultimately, if, when people play this, they're going to go, oh, this is a direct descendant of Oxenfree. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about... A game Pass for a second. Mm. So you're on Game Pass now with Oxenfree, yep. and uh, you are launching After Party into Game Pass, which I mentioned at the top of the, our conversation here, uh, among among other, the other platforms. So as much as you are legally allowed or willing, I'm, I'm genuinely curious, because I actually hear this a lot from, you know, I host our Xbox podcast here every week, and, and, I, and I, there's a lot of fans, gamers, that, that kind of go, I haven't... How does that work as far as like you guys keeping the lights on and being successful? Like so how do the economics of Game Pass work? Like you are launching a brand new game day one into Xbox Game Pass. How does that work for your studio? So we wouldn't have even done it if Oxenfree didn't do so well via Game Pass. So what happened with Oxenfree was like we ultimately, Oxenfree had come out via ID at Xbox. We already had a great yep. relationship with them. And prior to Game Pass launching, they were like, we want to flesh out this catalog. Um, there are some terms that I can't talk about Fair specifically. Enough. But it's not like they're just like, bring it over here for free. So there's, you know, you could imagine that there's a reason why we would do it. And it came out. And what I was worried about was, is this going to cannibalize other sales early on? Like, that was the main sure. concern, right? You go, well... If this is going to be out on the same platform that it, like, I want people buying it on Xbox still. But what we found was not only when it came out on Xbox or on Game Pass did it, like, not do that, it also increased our sales everywhere else on every platform. Because I think what happened was, like, the discoverability that you're talking about, yeah. certainly when Game Pass first came out, it had a more limited catalog, but I think. It's the least friction imaginable for somebody who's looking for a new game. So they right. heard about Oxenfree. They're like, eh, maybe I don't want to spend the money on it. They try it. They play it. Ideally, they fall in love with it. They tell their friends about it. 
and we got a ton more installs across the board everywhere. That's awesome. So it was great. So with After Party, when they reached out to us, they were like, we've had a great partnership with you guys previously. We structured a somewhat similar deal, but ultimately it's the kind of thing where it's weird. I don't, like, nobody... Nobody at Microsoft has told me to say this, but it really is like one of the best things to happen for the game industry. I completely I like agree. It's incredible. Yeah, I think we're in five years. This will be the just the industry norm, norm and yeah. we'll look back on buying games as a as a probably mm-hmm. a weird thing. But so is it? Are there like maybe you can't say, but are there multiple sort of options? Like, are, are is it like an upfront payout to say like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna make sure that you guys are comfortable, and then you don't get anything else from there, and it's sort of like <laughs> right. we're going to make you comfortable, and that's it. Or is it is it like a do, do you get kind of a, a little piece? I, like, like I just I guess I just don't understand sort of for the financial health of the studio. What I don't know, you know, without specifics, obviously. Like, can sure. you kind of speak in general terms of of how it's advantageous? I think to you guys. Is, so I, it might be different for other studios, honestly. Like yeah. maybe they've all negotiated totally different types of deals. Um, for us, it's very similar to what I hear selling a show to Netflix feels like. So like for us, that's kind of how the structure feels. But it's been. Um, I bet for other people, it's it's different. I don't know. So it's effectively you're 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 removing some of the risk. Uh, you're, you're raising your floor and lowering your poten- ceiling. Maybe is that a is that a fair generalization? It, yeah, it's sort of, well. I would just say yeah, because I can't go into specifics. Yeah. But I would say it just offsets a lot of risk for us in a category that wouldn't otherwise even be problematic. That's right. kind of why we make that decision because it's like we still know that we will be able to sell and sell well on Xbox, and that's the part where I wouldn't have ever signed up for this unless we tested it on the oxen free front. Yeah. But Microsoft has been an extraordinary part. And they're very fair in their deal, and that's basically it. Yeah, but like it's like the decision making process for us comes less down to how can we be aggressively monetizing over some crazy long term and more about like how do we just make the right footprint in the right places. And when it comes to Game Pass, that was like just it just felt right. So you're getting you're getting a lot more eyes on the game, which will in turn lead to more sales for hopefully after party and probably for oxen free too. Exactly. Is that, yeah. is that yeah. fair to and say? Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that what, what we've found when I was talking before about being overly precious about certain things, um, the same way that I used to be really paranoid about streamers playing through our game and spoiling it for people. Now I'm like, it just doesn't matter. And on the Xbox or on the game pass front, it's like, this is the way to get a ton of eyeballs on this thing and ideally loving it and having it be a part of like them caring about our studio moving forward, right? Yeah. Like it meant a lot for us to now have a name for them. You get right. fans. Exactly. To look forward to the next thing. Yeah. So oh that's that's awesome. Uh, do you see with with I mean, do you see people that play on Game Pass? Do a lot of them buy the game, even though they already have it on? Do they like go ahead and convert that to full ownership? They so because Game Pass can run out, we've seen a lot of people. Then they, if they don't continue with their subscription, they do that. Or what we found is that they'll end up buying it on other platforms too. Nice, so okay, like yeah, double, triple dip across yes. the board. Yeah, oh, that's that's, so that's, that's so great. been really cool. Like that's I think there's something about the size of our game and like just the the genre that makes people sort of feel like I kind of want to own this on two or three yeah. platforms. You want to hang on to it forever. Right, right. And that means you've done something right, if people feel that way. 
hopefully. Yes. <laughs> um, all right, just a couple more questions, yeah. and I, I will let you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're one and a half beers in. This is the solid. Um, <laughs> that you know of. So you mentioned, you mentioned early in the interview uh, LucasArts point-and-click adventure games, which yes. are extremely near and dear to me as well. Um, I'm so fortunate to have met Tim Schafer, somebody he works three blocks from here at Double Fine, and um, I don't, I don't, uh, I try to stay professional in this job because I do take it seriously. But Tim's one of the people where I had to, I still had my original full throttle box mm. from 1996, and you know, one of the first times I ever got to meet him, I had him sign the box. And have, have you had a chance? Because you mentioned LucasArts Adventure Games. Have you met Tim or, or Ron Gilbert or any sort of, of your adventure game heroes, as it were? I don't know Ron. I wish I did. I've met Tim on a number of occasions yeah. now. And yet, yeah, the first time I met him, I was a blithering idiot. Uh, and fortunately now, I think I've composed myself a little better each time that I see him. But no, he's great. He's like the humblest, kindest, coolest guy. And it's very hard for me to reconcile how important the games are that he's made and continues to make with where I am now because yeah. like a lot of what we do obviously the DNA of a lot of what we do comes from that lineage what um, who, who are sort of your game industry heroes you know you said you've been playing since you were a little kid in Atari 2600 are there are there designers that that you've always really held in, in super high specific esteem Tim for sure um, Mizuguchi is probably the biggest one although that is a he, he exists in such a different lane that we <laughs> will never even attempt to try to <laughs> compete in but like my god Miz, Mizuguchi circa Dreamcast era is probably as important to me as a lot of the stuff we mentioned earlier it's just that I was older playing that stuff yeah. Um, but yeah actually that's all I would say I would start and end with Mizuguchi um <laughs> What do you what do you hope gamers again October 29th? Yes. Game Pass, PS4, Xbox, PS4. PC. And and what's uh if if it's if it's not Game Pass, what's the price? Are we are we 19.99? Okay. Yeah. So that's that's the message that everyone should take away yes. from this interview, but And that the game um, is amazing. It's about two <laughs> friends who die and go to hell and have to drink their way out of hell like we're doing right now. <laughs> Wait, this is hell? We're in hell no, no, we're no, no, dead? No. Oh, no. I've made some terrible choices along the way. Um, but yeah, what, what are you hoping the gamers take away from After Party? What is, what is your hope there? I think at the highest level, just that they laugh. Because <laughs> it's a very different game than what Oxenfree was. Yeah. Like we, we set out to make this game to feel more like a lean-back watch Rick and Morty or uh, you know BoJack Horseman with your friends on the couch, Adult Swim style of thing yeah. on the surface. And then the further you dig and the further you play through it, I think I guess the next layer after having fun and laughing would be, oh wow, this touched my heart even more than Oxenfree. There's a lot that we are not really talking about yet in terms of like the exploration of their friendship and why they're in hell and the nature of all these various people that are there. So I think there's going to be a lot of surprising stuff in the game. But ultimately, just I hope you laugh and have fun in it because it really does, like, we feel like it feels like an episodic, binge-worthy series on Netflix or something. It fit like a crazy adult animated show. Awesome. Who, and who doesn't need a good laugh, That's right? it, Everybody now, for sure. <laughs> uh, television is mostly, like, Awesome but serious dramas and comedy. Have we fun. Need a have good fun. laugh. That's what, like, this game is inspired by, like, when we started Oxenfree, it was all the Spielberg stuff, like I said. This one, we were like, how do we make a Bill and Ted? How do we make a Beetlejuice? How do we make the Edgar Wright movies? You know, how yeah. do we, like, that type of a vibe? And that, that's, you know, we just, we don't, there's a lot of those movies, but there's not a lot of those games. So we kind of wanted to make a playable version of that. 
So you guys, uh, Night School Studios just recently celebrated your five-year anniversary. Congratulations on you. that. So, uh, last question for you. What what is the next five years look like? What's the plan? What's uh, what's the hopes and dreams? So there's a few things that are going on. Uh, one, this is the smallest thing possible. Yeah. We're, we're making an after-party beer. Really? I swear to God. <laughs> we'll put it on this left Well, hat. yeah, what is it? I swear to what, God. It's going to be an IPA. We're very IPA? early on. Yeah, it'll be an IPA. So, all right. We're early on that. But that's not the important stuff. Um, we just want to keep making story games, but that story gets interacted with really differently each time, like that you haven't seen before. And I think for us, that means more original IP. Like we have to, like the reason Oxenfree works, the reason After Party works well, and that they don't feel like weird licensed games, is that the story idea was born from a set of mechanics and the two kind of talk to each other. Yeah. And we just want to keep experimenting in that space. So, you know, we're not like, oh, we're a transmedia company. We're, we're a game studio <laughs> that wants to make fun, awesome yes. games. But by the end of them, we hope you love our characters. So there will be certainly new IP, and there will likely be revisiting some other IP that oh, already exists. Nice teaser. <laughs> I like that. Uh, Sean Crankle, the co-founder of Night School Studios. October 29th is the day you need to go on your platform of choice, except for Switch, because that'll come soon-ish. a little later, soonish. Soon-ish. Yes. But uh, j- jump on, play After Party, buy it for 20 bucks. If you're on Xbox and you get a Game Pass subscription, you can just download it and have fun. Sean, thank you so much. Thank this you. This was a blast. Thanks for being uh, my first guest at the at the bar arcade yeah, slash man. barcade slash whatever I'm allowed to say or I'll not clean say. Up now. Trademark. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, we did okay. I think we did good. It was I fun. I agree. I agree. Uh, for more from the best, brightest, and most interesting minds in the games industry, check back every month for new episodes of IGN Unfiltered.